0: This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: The Fonside of Murders is one of Stockholm's most notorious criminal cases. It was on the afternoon of March 7, 1932. Swedish politician Hjalmar von Sydow, his housekeeper Caroline Herrå, and the maid Ebba Hann were all found beaten to death at von Sydow's home in a prominent part of Stockholm. This started a desperate hunt for the killer or killers, ending up with two more people dead before the day was over. Welcome to episode 21 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. We have a lot of new listeners that I want to say an extra welcome to. I'm so glad you found the podcast and that you like what I'm doing here. The best way you can support the podcast is by talking about it. Tell a friend, a co-worker, just someone that you might think would be interested. A lot of people still don't even know what a podcast is. Please help me and my fellow podcast friends to spread the word and let more people have the opportunity to enjoy this completely free media. And don't forget to join the discussion group on Facebook if you want to discuss the cases further. Just search for True Crime Sweden Discussion Group on Facebook. And before we get into today's case, I want to play a promo for a real favorite podcast of mine. Murderous Miners, Killer Kids, hosted by the awesome War Baby. The simple truth is that children kill.
0: Kids have murdered their best friends, teachers, grandmas, and even their own babies children have killed alone and in groups, with other kids and sometimes with adults too. Who can even begin to speculate as to how people can justify resorting to murder? Not us. This show focuses on the facts, details, and circumstances which give rise to murderous minors, killer kids.
1: Be sure to head over to your podcast provider of choice and subscribe to Murders, Miners, Killer Kids. You won't be disappointed. Well, enough of the business and let's get into today's case, the Fonseed of Murders. This case is researched and written by Johanna Udstål-Friberg. Thank you so much, Johanna, for an amazing job as always. And a little shout out to my niece, Therese Lundqvist, who suggested this case a while back. Now it's finally here, Tess. I hope you enjoy. This is a notorious case that happened back on March 7th, 1932. Most people in Stockholm at that time were poor and struggling. But the family this case is all about was quite the opposite. The von Sydow family was rich and well-known in the higher social circles. The main target of this horrible crime was Yalmar von Sydow, born in 1862. He was a Swedish lawyer and politician. He was a nobleman and part of a very privileged family in Swedish society back then. The von Sydow's originated from Germany, but came to Sweden in the early 1700s. For those of you who like horror movies, you might recall a relative of Yalmar's, the actor Max von Sydow, who starred in the movie The Exorcist from 1973. Max von Sydow was also in Game of Thrones, playing the Three-Eyed Raven in the season that aired in 2016. Anyway, Hjalmar von Sydow grew up with his parents and an older brother. He graduated in 1880 and went to the University of Lund to study to become a lawyer. His first job was at the Skåne hövret, the Court of Appeals in Skåne, which eventually led him to go into politics. In 1989, he was appointed deputy mayor and less than ten years later, he became the chairman and CEO of the Swedish Employer Union, SAF, Svenska Arbetsgivareföreningen. SAF was founded in 1902 to be the counterpart of the trade unions that had emerged during the labor movement in Sweden. Just a quick side note here on the Swedish labor movement because it describes just how famous Hjalmar von Sydow was at the time of his murder, and also explaining why the von Sydow killings is one of Sweden's most notorious criminal cases. The labor movement dates back to at least the 1850s, when Swedish workers initiated the organizing of previously spontaneous food riots into strikes, hence acting as an autonomous group. Modern types of labor unions emerged in the 1870s. In 1886, Sweden's first national labor union, the Swedish Typograph Union, was founded. They organized typographers in the printing industry for better work conditions when operating printing presses. Today, the world's highest rates of union membership are in the Scandinavian countries. In 2010, the percentage of workers belonging to a union was 68% in Sweden, and 55% in Norway, and it was uh, 35% in Ireland, and 18% in Germany. As workers started to unite, the businesses needed to take action. They founded SAF, the Swedish Employer Union which Hjalmar von Sydow was chosen to lead in 1907. The purpose was to negotiate as one united voice against the unions to be more successful in defending business owners' rights. Hjalmar's career was blooming and so was his love life. He married the 25-year-old Ruth Svarts in 1900 when he was 38 years old. The couple moved into a huge, fancy eight-room state apartment in one of the nicest districts of Stockholm, Kungsholmen. In 1916 he was elected into Swedish parliament as a representative of Högerpartiet, the conservative right. Janmar von Sydow was highly respected, famous and successful. He was known for his authoritarian, no-nonsense leadership. Jalmar led his family the way he led his organizations, with a firm, controlling grip. His wife, Rut, gave birth to three daughters and one son, while falling deeper and deeper into depression. Not much is known about Jalmar's wife, Rut, but we do know that she was diagnosed with weak nerves but what was really behind the term weak nerves industrialization and urbanization spread in the eighteen hundreds men and women across europe and north america struggled with disabling but subtle physical symptoms some suffered such pain and exhaustion that they had to stay in bed for weeks or months Famous people such as Charles Darwin and Florence Nightingale were disabled at various points in their lives by mysterious illnesses. Doctors and patients struggled to make sense of this widespread problem. It was given the names weak nerves, hysteria, and nervous breakdown, among others stating that someone had weak nerves allowed people with nervous symptoms to avoid the stigma and prejudice associated with mental health problems. Neurologists uh, specializing in nervous illnesses also argued that there were disorders of the body, not the mind. This meant patients avoided the hopelessness associated with asylums and insanity. Popular bully treatments included morphine, hypnosis, electrotherapy, and the rest cure. They were carried out in doctor's offices, health spas, or in the patient's own home. Another popular and relatively safe treatment for men with weak nerves were vigorous outdoor exercise. American President Theodore Roosevelt is said to have battled weak nerves throughout his life and was impressed by nature's therapeutic effects. Roosevelt championed the founding of the United States National Parks, expanses of government-owned wilderness set aside for later generations. Anyway... Ruth suffered from weak nerves and spent a lot of time in spa facilities and places where she had rest cures. She gave birth to her first child within a year after the wedding. It was a baby called Dagmal. Her second daughter, Emily, was born in 1904, and the couple also had a son, Friedrich, in 1908. Ruth became pregnant again only months after Fredrik was born. Sadly enough, their second son, Victor Hugo, born in 1909, only lived for one day. It's not known what was wrong with him, but naturally this was a tragedy for both Ruth and Hjalmar. Ruth, who was already struggling with her mental health, fell deeper into depression after Victor Hugo died. Jalmar, of course, noticed that Ruth was getting worse day by day, and he called the doctor again. They had to find a cure for her. The doctor prescribed morphine, and this quickly turned Ruth into a drug addict. She kept the habit up until she died. And by keeping the morphine in the house, she exposed the drug to the children. Emily, her second daughter, was 17 years old when she started using morphine, and it's believed that she was the one who influenced Friedrich to start using when he was in his early teens. The von Sydow's were privileged, rich, and had means to buy both morphine and alcohol in a time when it was legal for the main population. The life of the rich and famous in the early 1900s included at least a couple of housemaids employed at all times. They would take care of the children, clean the apartment and put food on the table. Ruth was incapable of taking care of the household when Hjalmar was at work, so the children were pretty much raised by the staff. In the summer of 1924, when Emily was 20 years old, she found herself pregnant by her then fiancé. Her mother, Ruth, was surprised and appalled, but suggested they reschedule the wedding to keep her from embarrassing themselves and their families. Hjalmar, on the other hand, was relentless. He wanted to punish Emily and forced her in August of 1924 to go away to become thin. Ruth and Emily went to Denmark together, and they were later sent to a mental hospital in Innsbruck, Germany. They spent many months in a prison-like room. Ruth wrote letters to her husband begging to be sent home again, but Hjalmar said no. Emily eventually gave birth to a daughter, who disappeared after a couple of days, probably adopted by someone, but no one knows. After the birth, Ruth and Emily were finally allowed to go home in the early months of nineteen twenty five without the baby girl. Emily's pregnancy and the loss of the grandbaby put Ruth even deeper into despair. She lost her will to live, and by the time Their only living son, Friedrich, graduated from high school. Ruth died of illness in 1926. I haven't been able to find any more information about her death, but this makes me quite certain that Ruth finally decided that she had enough of this life. I personally think she committed suicide by overdosing on morphine, but again, I haven't found any evidence of this in my research. Jalmar was at the peak of his career in 1926, when he was widowed. His oldest daughters had gotten married and moved out of the house, and Fredrik was about to go off to the University of Stockholm later that fall. The only child still living at home was Marianne, ten years old at the time of her mother's death. Marianne had been raised by the maids at the house and had a poor relationship to her father. Ruth was dead, and Hjalmar was left alone with the four children. If it wasn't for the loyal mates they surrounded themselves with, Hjalmar wouldn't have been able to cope with the grieving and increasingly obstinate and defiant Fredrik and Marianne. From a very early age, Fredrik was not an easy child to manage, he was an impulsive prankster, always behaving mischievously and out of bounds. If Frederick had been born in 2008 instead of 1908, he would probably have been diagnosed with ADHD. He was always up to something, messing with the staff and making their family life a struggle. His mother, Ruth, was not capable of taking care of herself let alone her children, during their upbringing. So Fredrik and the girls grew up without a mother's care, and their father was very absent, spending long hours at work conducting important businesses for the sake of the Swedish government. When Hjalmar was home, he demanded respect and obedience. Any form of independent thoughts or questioning of his authority was immediately struck down. Friedrich was very intelligent, despite his temper. He was also a bit of an asshole, thinking he was better than everyone else, being a von Fonsidov and all. He was rude and arrogant to the staff, and he would take every opportunity to steal money from Hjalmar or liquor from the drink cabinet. When he graduated, he had almost all A's, except for a D in conduct. Fredrik was not the type of child you told what to do. Hjalmar was probably feeling very powerless in regard to his son's choices and needs. He still controlled the money. And his son Fredrik was forced to go to university to be supported by him financially. But other than that, Fredrik pretty much did whatever he wanted. And what Fredrik wanted, most of all, was to be with Ingun, the love of his life, and to drink and do drugs. To tell the story of the Romeo and Julia-like tale of Fredrik and Ingen, we must go back in time, to 1923, when Fredrik was 15 years old and his parents had just bought a new summer house. This time in beautiful Velamsund, part of the Stockholm inner archipelago. Just like most noble families in those days, They left the inner city of Stockholm in the summer to stay close to nature and water. Rut, the four children and the maids moved out to Velamsund when school was out for the semester. Hjalmar, who had an important work to do in Stockholm, stayed behind in the apartment, and sometimes he joined the family on Sunday afternoons when he had a rare day off from work. Fredrik and his three sisters were left to themselves when they stayed in Velamsund. Ruth was usually in bed all day, and the maids were busy with Marianne, the youngest, and to get the food on the table every day. One afternoon, Fredrik took a walk along the water, and he stumbled upon the most beautiful girl he had ever seen, Ingun Sundian Kullberg they started talking and things got more and more serious after that ingham was born in 1909 and was 14 years old at the time they met frederick was 15. she was a tall blonde with nice manners her hair was long and her eyes blue frederick couldn't take his eyes off of her Just like Fredrik, Ingen was upper class and her family had a summer house in Willemsund, just like the Fonsidovs. Ingen's father, Alrik Sundén-Kullberg, was the founder of an insurance company that would later be called Trygghansa, now part of the global insurance company RSA. Alrik was filthy rich, and Ingen had everything she could possibly need in their 12-bedroom apartment on the street Strandvägen, in the fancy part Östermalm, the district of Stockholm. In the summer of 1923, when Ingen met Fredrik, she was very sad. Even if she had everything money could buy, she missed her mother, who had recently left the family. Ingen's mother, Elin Sundén-Kurbay, was one of the few Swedish women in the beginning of the 20th century who graduated from high school. She wanted to become a journalist and started working at a book publisher after her graduation. Her work led her to befriend many of the famous authors and scientists of that time. But when she got married to Alrik... She had to leave all of that behind. It wasn't appropriate for a woman to be working when she was married to a successful businessman. I can only imagine how conflicted Elin must have been. Having to choose between children and family on one side, and working with what she loved on the other side. She ended up having four children in her first marriage. Two boys and two girls. Her youngest son was born in 1916, and by the time he was seven, she was really fed up with her life as a stay-at-home mom. When her friends invited her to a luncheon at the department store Nordiska Kompaniet NK, that Wednesday in February, she had no idea this day would change her life forever. The NK store was not just a place for shopping, it had multiple places to eat and musicians hired to entertain the visitors. One of these musicians was a Romanian violinist called Dorin. When Elin and her friends had lunch together, they listened to Dorin playing the violin. There was something special about this man. Elin thought to herself as she was eating her shrimp sandwich and gossiping with her friends. She couldn't take her eyes off of him. And when they were leaving the restaurant, Elin told her friends she still had some errands to run in the department store and said goodbye to them. She didn't go anywhere though. Instead, she started talking to Dorin and they made plans to meet up the next day. One thing led to another, and soon Elin and Dorin became lovers. Elin eventually became pregnant by him. Before anyone would see what a situation she had put herself in, she packed her bags and left her four children and husband to go on a tour with Dorin throughout Europe. After 17 years of marriage, she just upped and left, it has been said that she didn't even say goodbye to Ingun and her siblings. The loss of her mother was what was troubling Ingun that warm summer day in 1923 when she first met Fredrik. She blamed herself for her mother leaving and tried to understand what she had done wrong to make her mother desert her like that. Frederick was immediately attracted to her vulnerability and swore he would never leave her. Inga's father divorced Elin within a year after her departure and shortly thereafter married a Hungarian widow, Gabby, who just recently had lost her Chinese diplomat husband, stationed in Stockholm. Gabby had a son, Toto, by her late husband. Gabby and Toto moved into the huge apartment on Strandvägen, with Alrik and his four children. Gabby was very strict and kept everyone in the household on their toes. Inga was fifteen when Gabby joined the family, and she was already deeply in love with Fredrik, too wrapped up in her own life to care about the rest of the family, as any other teenager. Seven years later, in 1930, the relationship between Ingens mother, Elin, and Durin was over, and she returned to Stockholm with two boys, aged six and four. Her ex-husband Aldric took pity on her and offered to pay alimony for her, under one condition: she was never to contact her four children by him ever again. And as far as we know. Elin kept her promise. Let's go back to the summer of 1923, when Ingen and Fredrik fell in love. At first, I don't think neither Hjalmar nor Alrik knew what was going on between the young lovebirds. They weren't close enough to their families to find out. But as it was time for the families to move back to the city... It became more and more obvious that their children were spending a lot of time together. The years passed by, and the couple stayed together, to both fathers' dissatisfaction. On the surface, it would seem as if Ingun and Fredrik were made for each other. They were both upper class and rich, but Hjalmar wanted Fredrik to stay in school and focus on his future career. He himself hadn't married until he was almost 40 years old. And Ingen was just the daughter of a rich businessman, neither a nobleman or someone influential in society. Hjalmar wanted much more for his future prime minister son. Alrik, on the other hand, didn't like Fredrik at all. The boy was a menace, always getting into trouble and partying too hard. He was arrogant and full of himself. Alric wanted his Ingun to marry a nice man with a bright future, not this von of punk. But nothing could keep Ingun and Fredrik apart. They spent every day together after school, and by the time Ingun finished her studies at the Olstromska private school for girls in January of 1928, She was pregnant. The two fathers were outraged. They forbid every contact between the two teenagers and argued over what they were going to do about this scandal. It was a shame to have your daughter be pregnant before marriage, and after all, she was only 18 years old and not of age yet. The embarrassed grandfathers-to-be, Alrik and Hjalmar, sent Ingon off to become thin, just like Hjalmar did with Dagmar. Ingun was sent to live with her stepmother Gabi's sister in Milan, Italy, before anyone could see her growing belly. She later gave birth to a baby girl, Monica, in July of 1928 and both grandfathers decided that the girl was going to stay with Gabby's sister and be raised in Italy. It is not known what Fredrik was doing that summer when his daughter was born, but one can only imagine that he spent a lot of time doing what he did best, partying and hanging out with friends. In the fall, he enrolled at Stockholm University, to study law, just like his father told him to. The year after Friedrich transferred to Uppsala University, he continued to study law, but he also signed up for classes he took a personal interest in, such as philosophy. Fredrik was always short of money, and still he went out to restaurants and bars almost every night in Uppsala. Hjalmar was becoming increasingly frustrated with him, but as long as he was doing well in school, there was not much he could do. He did put a lock on the drink cabinet at home, to keep Fredrik from getting drunk at home on the weekends. Ingen was back from Italy, living with her stepmother and father in the huge apartment on Strandvägen. She spent as much time as she possibly could with Fredrik in Uppsala, or in his place on Strand, But she was getting a bit concerned about Fredrik's drinking and drug habits, which seemed to be increasing. A year and a half after Monica was born in Italy, Fredrik and Ingen awoke to get married in Copenhagen, Denmark. They didn't tell anyone they were leaving and when their fathers found out, they threatened to take them out of their wills. But Fredrik had become of age the past summer, and Ingan was turning 21 in a couple of days. They were finally adults, free to do what they wanted, and they wanted to get married and live together. Hjalmar and Alrik couldn't do anything about the marriage, but they did control the money because none of them had a job. So they forbade them from moving in together, even if they were now legally husband and wife. The constant fight between Friedrich and his father continued. Friedrich was angry with his father, but he knew he wouldn't be able to support himself if the father didn't pay for everything. So he had to obey his will and resentment grew inside him. Ingun, on the other hand, she managed to persuade her father and Gabby to bring her daughter Monica home to Stockholm, now that she was a married woman. It wouldn't be embarrassing, since I'm twenty-one and married, she said to her father Alrik, and he must have had a soft spot for his first-born daughter, because he said okay. Ingun's stepmother Gabby, and her son Toto went to Italy to bring Monica home to Ingun, where she belonged. Ingun and her daughter Monica ended up staying at the apartment at Standwagen with Alrik and Gabi, because Ingun was not allowed in the household of Jalmar von Sjödov and her beloved husband Fredrik. The future was looking brighter for the young couple. Even if they weren't allowed to live together, they spent almost every weekend together, parting with friends. Fredrik would go to Stockholm to see Ingun almost every weekend when they first got Monica back from Italy. The maids of the Sandian Kullberg household took care of Monica when Ingun was away from the house. By 1931, Fredrik was beginning to spiral out of control. His alcohol and drug abuse were getting worse, and he was smoking more than a pack of cigarettes every day. Besides the morphine habit he had from an early age, he also managed to find cocaine regularly. Cocaine was very rare in Stockholm in the 1930s. Unless you went to Berlin, there was nowhere you could get your hands on it. But Fredrik knew everybody that meant anything in the Stockholm nightlife. For him, cocaine was available whenever he felt like it. But it wasn't just his substance abuse that was a problem. He was constantly spending more money than his monthly allowance. It was as if Fredrik wanted to play the role of a wealthy and successful man, even if he hadn't earned a dime in his life yet. All the money he ever spent came from Hjalmar, his father, and this was frustrating to both father and son. Fredrik owed money to almost every bar in Uppsala by now, and friends started to pull away, not wanting to be connected to him and his own temper. His travels to Stockholm to see Ingun and Monica became less frequent. Ingen could tell there was something off about him, and when she would call him to ask why he wasn't coming, he always blamed his studies. But in reality, Fredrik was partying with friends, and hanging out with other girls. Ingen was becoming increasingly worried and concerned about his behavior. Drugs and alcohol had Fredrik in a tight grip and there was nothing Ingen could do to make her and Monica his number one priority. At last, Ingen decided to go to Uppsala to look for Fredrik. She was jealous and worried at the same time, but she couldn't just stop caring about him. Ingen got on a train to Uppsala in the morning and looked all over the city until night came. Then she started visiting all of his known favorite bars, and finally she found a place where one of Fredrik's friends was having a dinner. He quickly invited her to their table, and she sat down and asked if they had seen Fredrik anywhere. They all said no, but continued to order drinks and food for her. What no one of them knew was that Friedrich was in the same restaurant the whole time Ingen had dinner with his friends. But instead of coming up to her table and asking her to join him, he just looked at her from afar. And when his friend followed Ingen to the door, he suddenly showed up and yelled at her angrily. You are going to pay for this, implying that she had done something wrong to him. And then he just turned around and left. Ingen had to catch the last train to Stockholm alone without making any progress with Fredrik. In October of that year, Fredrik suddenly showed up in front of Ingen, walking down one of the main roads in Stockholm. He was accompanied by a young girl, and before he noticed her, Ingen made a left turn to get out of his sight. The jealousy rinsed over her. She contemplated her options and became angry. Who was he to run around with strange girls when they were still married? Fredrik had disappointed her so many times and now he betrayed her with other women. When Ingen's father Aldrik told her that he had arranged a job for her in Malmö, she packed her bags and moved south, away from Fredrik, away from the pain. About a year after their romantic wedding in Copenhagen, Ingen walked away, and Fredrik didn't stop her. Ingen worked for an insurance company in Malmö and had a room near her office. She worked there from December 1930 to January of 1932, a little more than a year. Her co-workers later told reporters that Ingen was very sympathetic and friendly, and she had a very distinct style of clothes. Ingen loved to express herself with modern clothes, sometimes worn in an unexpected manner, With some distance to Fredrik, both physically and mentally, Ingen worked up a courage to file for divorce. She was about to build a life of her own in Malmö, when Fredrik suddenly entered her life again. This time by almost dying. But let's start from the beginning. In April 1931, Fredrik came home late from a party and lay down on the bed to have a smoke. He accidentally fell asleep, and the bed caught on fire. Friedrich woke up in a room completely filled with smoke, and he had to escape the flames by throwing himself out of the window. He fell down five floors, and he was almost killed. In the hospital records from that night, it said that Friedrich was bleeding from his left ear and nose, and he had broken his left arm and right leg. He also suffered a concussion, and his skin was burned. Fredrik had to stay in the hospital for two months. By midsummer 1931, after being hospitalized for two months, Fredrik was well enough to move into the family summer house in Sund. He spent the summer with Ingun and Monica, walking on crutches but recovering. In September, Fredrik went back to Uppsala University, where he rented a small room near campus. A year goes by, and Fredrik's mental state was rapidly declining. He was physically recovered, but he was drinking and doing drugs more than ever. Wherever he went, he owed someone money, and his father was becoming more and more reluctant to help him out. Fredrik felt rejected by Hjalmar. He knew now that all he wanted was to live with Ingun and Monica. Why couldn't his father understand that? If he only could make his father see how much he loved Ingun and how good they were together, maybe Hjalmar would change his mind finally. Two months before the tragedy, Ingun had moved back to Stockholm again. If she did this to be closer to her daughter or to Fredrik is unknown. Monday, March 7th, started just like any other Monday that winter for the six people that lived in the eight-room apartment on Norr It was Jalmar von Sydow and his two children, Fredrik and 10-year-old Marianne. Their cousin, Maria Swartz, 16 years old, was temporarily living with them because of her studies at the Technical School of Stockholm. There was also the staff, the housekeeper, 63-year-old Carolina hero and the maid, 24-year-old Ebba Hamn, who both lived in their own separate rooms in the apartment. The housekeeper, Carolina, had been with the Fonsido family for a couple of years. Not much is known about her, other than that she got divorced when her children were grown up. She solved her living situation by becoming a housekeeper at the von Sydow's residence. The maid, Ebba, had just recently moved to the big city of Stockholm from her home in rural Stängnes. Her parents had a farm, and instead of staying home milking cows, Ebba wanted to see the world. She was offered free room and board for her services as a maid, and she also got a small weekly allowance. Her working hours were around the clock if the family was home. Both Carolina and Ebba were expected to work whenever there was a need for them, just like all maids and housekeepers at this time. The housekeeper Carolina's family later told the police that Carolina didn't like her job with the von She told her family how Hjalmar and Fredrik were constantly arguing over money and alcohol and that Fredrik was disrespectful to the staff. The maid Ebba, on the other hand, seemed to have enjoyed her work with the Fonsidovs. She didn't care much for Fredrik, but she really liked Hjalmar. One week before the murders, though, Carolina and Ebba went to the Swedish unemployment office to apply for a new position elsewhere. It is not known what happened to make them do this but one can only imagine that it had something to do with the tensions between father and son in the household. Both women wanted to get out of the Fonsido house as quickly as possible, but there were no open positions at such short notice, so they went back to work at the Fonsidos the next day, and one week later they were killed. The housekeeper, Carolina's oldest son, an adult man by the time of the murder, later told the police that Fredrik had stolen money from his mother and that she was afraid of him. Ebba's parents were also questioned by the police afterwards and they confirmed that Ebba had issues with Fredrik. So back to Monday morning, March 7th, 1932. Fredrik's younger sister Marianne and her cousin Maria went to school in the morning. Hjelmar went to work and Fredrik was still at home. He called Ingun to ask her out for lunch and she took a cab to Normälastrand with Monica to meet up with Fredrik. They had lunch and went for a walk afterwards. Ingun and Monica are back in their apartment on Strandvägen around two o'clock that same afternoon. This is confirmed by a friend of Ingen's who called her at that time. Something happened later that afternoon, and she went back to Friedrich's apartment at four o'clock, this time without her daughter, Monica. Fredrik himself went straight home after lunch with Ingen. The girls were still at school, and he was alone in the apartment, only accompanied by the maid, Ebba, and the housekeeper, Carolina. We don't know what Friedrich and Ingen talked about over lunch. One theory is that they made plans to work up the courage to ask their respective fathers permission to move in together. Given the state Friedrich was in, abusing alcohol and morphine, and the fact that Ingen filed for divorce, this is not likely. A more likely scenario is that Fredrik wanted to apologize for the way he treated her the day before, when Ingen celebrated her 23rd birthday. Fredrik was invited to a birthday party at Alrik and Gabby's, and he made a fool out of himself, as usual. The couple went their separate ways after lunch, and Fredrik probably realized that he had lost Ingen and Monica. He needed to get back on his feet again and he needed to do that fast. If only Hjalmar would grant him another loan. If he did, Fredrik would pay off all of his debt, and Ingon would forgive him. Fredrik breaks open the drink cabinet and finishes a whole bottle of punch. He wanted to work up the courage to ask his father for one last favor, to get him out of debt. When Hjalmar comes back at 3.30, Fredrik immediately corners him in the living room, where Ebba is cleaning the windows, and Carolina is sitting in a chair repairing curtains. Hjalmar and Fredrik get into a heated argument, and when Fredrik punched his father in the face, Ebba left the room. The situation spun out of control. Fredrik grabs an iron standing on the table next to him and smashes it into the head of Hjalmar. Hjalmar falls to the ground. Caroline, the housekeeper, who is still in the room, is paralyzed and terrified. Fredrik then walks up to her and hits her multiple times in the head with the iron. Both Hjalmar and Carolina were beaten to death. Fredrik left the room and started looking for Ebba the only witness to the senior's crime. He finds her in Hjalmar's bedroom, hiding behind the bed. Fredrik quickly ends her life too, with the iron. When Fredrik comes down, he realizes what he has done, and a plan starts to form in his mind. He calls Ingen and tell her what he had just did. For some unknown reason, Ingen leaves everything, and goes to Normälarstam to be with Fredrik in his moment of despair. Maybe she felt like she owed him to stay by his side, or maybe he gave her a story that made her want to rush over, and he didn't tell her the truth at all. Ingen had been in love with Fredrik for nine years, and she possibly thought she could save him from himself. Clearly the two had issues with codependence, but sadly enough, Ingen couldn't break loose from him, no matter how he treated her and Monica. While Fredrik was waiting for Ingun, he pulled out a napkin and shoved it into Hjalmar's mouth to prevent him from breathing. Hjalmar was lying on his back, in a pile of blood, at the feet of the dead Carolina, still sitting in a chair. Ingun helps Fredrik clean the apartment and lock the doors to the rooms where Ebba, Carolina, and Hjalmar are dying. As Ingen is cleaning the hallway carpet from blood, the cousin, Maria, walk through the door, coming home from school. Fredrik is surprised to see her, but he quickly says that they spilled wine on the carpet and needs to clean it, and then he tells Ingen to leave the apartment with him. Maria, the cousin, is very uncomfortable. She could sense that something was wrong, but she couldn't understand what. She also heard strange noises coming from one of the rooms. When Fredrik's little sister Marianne came home about 15 minutes later, the girls found the bathtub filled with reddish water. That's when they realized that something horrible had happened and ran out of the apartment. They knocked on the door of the neighbor, who quickly called the police. As soon as the police found the bodies, they issued a nationwide alert. It was found that Friedrich stole his father's wallet, containing about 7,000 Swedish kronor. Uh, that's about 900 US dollars. The alert stated that the police were looking for a Miss Ingen, wearing a dark dress and a long dark coat a small black hat, and black shoes. They were also looking for Mr. Fredrik von Sydow, who wore a black jacket, striped dress pants, white shirt, black tie, light grey coat, and a black hat. After leaving the apartment, Fredrik and Ingon called a cab. They first made a stop at a friend's house, where Fredrik said he needed to leave some money. Ingen stayed in the car while Fredrik went up to the apartment. What she didn't know was the fact that Fredrik borrowed a gun from this friend, and as a thanks, he gave him money. When he got back to the car, they went to the Tegner restaurant in the center of Stockholm. They ordered food and shots, but left the place after only drinking their vodka. They got into another cab and made a stop at a pharmacy where Fredrik bought sodium bromide, a light sedative commonly used back in the days. They continued their cab ride and made another stop at a men's outfitter store, where Fredrik bought a new jacket and put the old bloody one in a bag that he brought with him. While Fredrik was in the men's store, Ingen stopped at a lingerie store and bought new pantyhose. The cab drove them towards Uppsala, a city located about 70 kilometers, or about 44 miles north of Stockholm. But they needed to make a stop halfway out of Stockholm because of problems with the engine. The driver later told the police that he was shocked to see the lady changing her pantyhose in the back of the car. Ingen took her dirty clothes with her when she and Fredrik went to a bus stop to catch a ride to Uppsala when the taxi broke down. The first bus to arrive only took them to Norrviken, about 20 kilometers or 12 miles north of Stockholm. So they made a stop at a tea room here to call a cab. The waitress saw Fredrik swallow the sodium bromide powder before they left. The new cab took the fleeing couple to Uppsala, where they tried to get a room at the fancy hotel Stadshotellet. There were no vacancies. Instead, they went to a restaurant called Gillet, a popular place usually packed with people on a Monday night. Fredrik and Ingen sat down and ordered champagne and oysters. By now, the police alert had reached Uppsala, and they had sent a patrol car to the restaurant. As if not to embarrass Fredrik, the police told the head waiter to bring him out to the back of the restaurant for a conversation. Ingen wanted to join him and they both walked away from the loud conversations of the dining room The police wanted to question Fredrik alone so they asked Ingen to step away from her husband Fredrik then walked up to her whispered something in her ear pulled out his gun and shot her in the head Before the policeman understood what just happened Friedrich pulled the trigger on himself. They both died instantly. Many people have analyzed the Fo of murders to try to figure out what made this tragedy happen. Did Ingen know she was going to die? I would guess no, being a mother myself, I don't think she was willing to leave her four-year-old daughter behind. But I do think Ingen felt obligated to help Friedrich get out of the predicament he had put himself in. Many of the details of this story are covered in the book. Iskuggan av ett in the shadow of a crime, by Helena Henschen. It was first published in 2004. Helena was the daughter of Fredrik's younger sister, Marianne. In the book she describes how the Foncide of murders became a forbidden topic in the family. The subject was never brought up. When Fredrik's younger sister, Marianne, was nearing the end of her life, her daughter, Helena, wanted to go to the bottom of this whole tragedy and started researching. She talked to almost everyone who was still alive, starting with her mother, Marianne. Helena Henschen won the European Union Prize of Literature in 2009 for her book about the Fonseca of Murders. I can highly recommend this book, but unfortunately, I could only find it in Swedish. Thank you so much for listening to episode 21 of True Crime Sweden. Today's fun fact is going to be connected to the case we just listened to. I'm going to tell you a little about the Swedish actors and actresses that made it in Hollywood. Starting, of course, with Max von Sydow. Max was born in 1929 as Karl Adolf von Sydow. He later took the first name, Max. I guess Adolf isn't really a name anyone wants to have after World War II. Max started drama school when he was 19, and then he worked with famous director Ingmar Bergman for a few years. His break in Hollywood came in 1965, when Max was 36 years old. He played Jesus Christ in the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told. And eight years later, in 1973, he played Father Lancaster Marin in the movie The Exorcist. He was nominated for a Golden Globe for that performance. He also played in *Shutter Island, Robin Hood, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and in 2006, he starred in Game of Thrones. Max was then 87 years old. That's amazing. Other Swedes that made it in Hollywood is of course Stellan Skarsgård, who starred in The Hunt for Red October, Goodwill Hunting, Mamma Mia, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and the Netflix series River. I highly recommend River. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's really good. And we were speaking of Stellan. We, of course, have to mention his talented sons as well. Stellan has eight kids, but let's start with the oldest one, Alexander Skarsgård. Alexander you probably recognize from Tarzan, True Blood, and Big Little Lies. He has also played Lady Gaga's boyfriend in the video for paparazzi. His younger brother, Gustav Skarsgård, has been in the TV series Vikings, and also in Westworld. And the even younger brother, Bill Skarsgård. He played the clown Pennywise in Stephen King's movie It. They also have a younger brother, Walter Skarsgård, who is also an actor. He hasn't been in any English-speaking movies yet, but my guess is that won't take too long. And we also have a couple of actresses that are amazing. First, let's mention... Alicia Vikander. She won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her role in The Danish Girl. She also played Lara Croft in Tomb Raider from 2018, among many other films. And then, of course, there's Nomi Rapace. She starred in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and is now landing many more film contracts in Hollywood. We also have... Actress Marlin Åkeman, who's been in movies like 27 Dresses, Watchmen, and The Heartbreak Kid. And I also have to mention Joel Kinnaman, who stars in the Netflix series The Killing. And last but not least, Peter Stormare, who has played in movies like Fargo, Armageddon, Dancing in the Dark, and Minority Report. And he also played John Abruzzi in Prison Break. So, Hollywood, you're welcome. We sent you the best we had. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't turn off just yet. There will be another promo for a great podcast that I think you should really check out. Extraordinary Stories Podcast. So stay tuned. You can reach me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com. And find me on social media. Just search for True Crime Sweden. The music played in the podcast is written especially for True Crime Sweden. And it's written by the super talented Nico of We Talk of Dreams. You can find him at wetalkofdreams.com.
0: Thank you so much. Hey, it's Barry. How are you? Let me ask you this. Do you like to hear stories of murder, deceit, And unbelievable true crime. If you do, then you want Extraordinary Stories podcast. This girl here will be dead by 6pm. I will blow her head off. You cannot terrorise me anymore. Do you want to hear stories of incredible human survival? Stories of some of the most inspiring people who have ever lived. I think she did what any of us would do in that moment. She played dead. She lay there and she pretended to have died. That was what saved her. If you want stories of sex, death, murder, survival and real human stories told with humour, but also respect, then you want Extraordinary Stories podcast. Imagine turning up to your own funeral in a wig. (laughs) Listen to Extraordinary Stories podcast. Told by a Scottish man in a thick Scottish accent. Get it on iTunes, Spotify, Anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Okay, goodbye. Let's get
1: it on. Let's do it. Let's get it over. See you next time. Goodbye. hei